Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello humans, this is Being Human. I'm your host Richard Atherton, Sarah Weiler, founder of Power of Uke and Rye Laughs Comedy Nights. Welcome. Thank you. So I, I think we should definitely start with what you're at least famous for in my eyes and that's <laughs> this ukulele, Power of Uke, yeah. corporate workshops. So tell us a bit about what you do and, mm. and where it started. So I started playing the ukulele about seven years ago and I fell in love with it because it was an instrument that you could travel with. And I'm a musician, but I'd always, I played the piano, so I found it so great when I found this instrument that I could yeah, travel around the world with and create music wherever I went. And I started working in Austria for a startup, and I had my ukulele with me. And at the start of working there, there was a lot of, like, a lot of problems in the team, like people weren't really connecting, and... I was in my naive state, said, let's do some music. I thought I was the Julie Andrews of you know, coming in to save Austria. And um, people were really resistant. They were like, we don't have time to do music. We've got so much to do with this startup. Like, it's really, really important that we focus on that. And I kept pushing it because I really knew the power of music and connecting. And finally, at Christmas, I managed to get everyone together in the staff. And we spent five minutes singing this song together. And it was this moment of, transformation for this team going from not really talking to kind of just releasing and just being silly and singing and I don't know it was just something changed in that moment and people were allowed to be free people were allowed to be themselves and the CEO who originally had been so against it suddenly was like we need to do music all the time let's, <laughs> let's schedule it in so as the team was growing every time someone new joined the team I wrote a song for them and we all sang it to welcome them and at the end of the year, we rewrote the, the lyrics to Daft Punk, Get Lucky. And I got two of the staff members to dress up as the Daft Punk robots. And they spent a whole day making these robot costumes. <laughs> and it was just this lovely moment from like not bringing play into an organisation to seeing how play can help people connect, how it can help people be more human. I mean, mm. I think that's essentially what happens when we're creative is that you're, you can't hide. You are accessing something very authentic and very real. So that was just something that I started doing with the team. But when I left, I was there for a year, I got sent a video of everyone who, and they'd written a song to say, they'd rewritten um, a Ring of Fire until we turned into a ukulele choir. And they'd all bought ukuleles. And they were this all singing. This was the, yeah, yeah, this was out me, the, the team in Austria. And they were all singing and this song. And I just, I looked at it and I thought, that's pretty amazing, like where we were a year ago. And I know it's not just that, but it, it seems symbolic. And I, in that moment, I thought, I'd love to take this to more teams. I'd love to go into an organisation and, and give them the opportunity to play music together, to see how you can shift some of those energies, shift yeah, the interactions people have together. So that was back in 2013, so five years ago now. And now, it's really, it really has evolved. So originally, it was going in to do team building. And now what I've seen is the power of music um, to really shift mindsets. So there's a lot of people who believe they're not musical. Um, like when I do show of hands in workshops, most people say, yeah, I'm not musical. But like that's often just from an experience they've had at school, 
Like, would you see your musical? Well, yeah, I, I like I play the guitar. I can yeah, do like three yeah. or four chords on a guitar, and I can strum a few mm. tunes. But I, I remember once I had an Irish girlfriend, and I went to her family, and yeah. they sort of sang as part of the, like their Saturday afternoon. And yeah, they're all looking at me like, "Oh, you're gonna sing Richard?" Yeah. I was like, so exactly, there is something. Yeah. But I've read before that kids can sing naturally in yeah. tune, right? And then it's sort of beaten out of them. Yeah, and it's the Picasso thing of everyone's bought enough born an artist we just unlearn it it's like they, they stop being becoming one rather than the other way around so yeah this is what I've started seeing these trends like about three years now I've been running these workshops is that as soon as I hold up a ukulele at the start and I say who wants to play and there's just this panic and this like you know tight chest and oh god oh god I mean there's very confident managers leaders you know very good at their jobs and there's this fear that comes in just by the idea of having to play something so I've started really getting into this now of like, what's happening in that moment? What is this fear? And actually, it's often a fear of like getting stuff wrong, of looking stupid, of, of being, yeah, being rejected. And what you find is when people do get up, there's just the opposite. So, so the person who does volunteer, everyone thinks they're amazing, brave, hilarious, really respectful. So um, a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment is this idea of showing up as yourself at work, this idea of like being, yeah, being open, being creative, and not necessarily playing an instrument, but that being representative of showing up in, all, in all, who you are. We often think that showing up is gonna be the reason we don't connect, but it's the opposite. Mm. So, you know, these workshops I do now are kind of- oh, so, Sorry, just sorry, pause that again. So showing up is, it will mean we don't connect. Well, I, I think often there's a worry that like, there's stuff about ourselves that we don't like. Right. And there's especially, um, especially creative, if you've had a negative experience of being creative and the amount of people in these workshops that say, yeah, well, when I was at school, a teacher told me I couldn't sing yeah. or I told me I couldn't. Basically, you're getting told very young that you, the way you're expressing yourself is not welcome. You know, you're singing and it's not okay. Mm. So there's something that shuts down, not just on a singing level, but on a whole level of like similar experiences of putting yourself out there. And you know whether that's public speaking, whether that's giving an idea, whether that's just I don't know anything that could be similar to the experience of well when I sang or when I put myself out there creatively that was shut down, and that can be so traumatic for people mm. that that translates to other parts of their life as well. Right, and so is it that when they, they think that if they if they share or if they express themselves that somehow that will be ugly or that yeah. people will reject them or won't like yeah. it and that would block the con connection rather than exactly. create a connection. Exactly. And you also, you know, you find when people are most relaxed and when they're with their friends or, you know, in a pub or something that they, or maybe after a couple of drinks where the filter goes off, that people connect a lot better. But that's, mm. we, I think we just have a very, we've decided what professional looks like right. and it's a, it's a screen and it's, and it's put on. And I think that's a lot of what I'm doing is going, yeah, we can do that, but what else is there and what else can you bring in? And Right. It was really interesting, one workshop the other day, I get them sitting on the floor to, to sing these songs. And you know, these are people who never sit on the floor. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I'm gonna invite you to sit on the floor now and sing Proud Mary on the ukulele. And everyone's like, okay, they go for it. And then, I said, how are, you, how are you feeling? And one person said, well, it's really interesting sitting on the floor because I feel like I'm a child. And I said, okay, tell me more about that. And I said, well, it's like going back to a time before I knew what was wrong and what I wasn't supposed to do. I was like, well, that's really powerful. And I was like, yeah, I feel like there's, I can do anything. I was like, do you sit on the floor much in your meetings? 
<laughs> you'll be corporate. And they're like, no. I was like, but you could do, right? If like sitting on the floor puts you in a state of not having inhibitions, it's pretty powerful. Mm. But we don't do these things. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, our, our, our corporate spaces aren't set up, are they, for sort of free expression? Yeah. You know, we're, we're sort of herded into a particular yeah. seating patterns. And yeah. So, yeah. No, I can see that. And you, and you help people break out of that. And I suppose once they've done it in one context, mm. it becomes maybe slightly easier to do it in another. I think it's, yeah, it's just, what is set up is a space where you just experiment with playing and being, doing things a bit differently and just seeing what the results are. Because often you can't trial that in a corporate environment because there's so much at stake. But you can trial it in a three-hour workshop where there's nothing at stake apart from just experimentation. Mm. But a lot of what I do at the end is like, what is this? What's the essence of this that you can bring to your work? Maybe you can't sit on the floor, but what is the essence of this that is feeling, that's helping you achieve today? Right. And loosening you up. Mm. That's what I'm interested in, like, what can you translate? Right, right. And do you ever get anybody who just clams up completely? I mean, do you sort of refuses to? Definitely at the start. And I think one of one of the things that I'm really because I, f I feel it's very traumatic for people often because it's going back to these yeah. really early memories. I really hold the space and I don't push people too much. I share where we're going. I'm like this is what we'll do at the end of the day. But I also I always check in like how are we feeling about that? And you know you have some people who are like I don't think we're going to do it. I don't want to do it. And then it's okay. And it's just building it up really slowly so that by suddenly they're playing and they're like oh how did that happen? <laughs> Tricking them a little bit. But yeah, definitely some people at the beginning. And yeah, I had one girl who was like, I, I, just, I, I just have such negative experience in music. But within five minutes, she was like, this is already my favorite music experience. Like I feel like, it, you know, it's actually breaking stuff for people. So I, I've never had anyone that at the end doesn't want to do it. But I've definitely had resistance at the start. Oh, that's, well, that's impressive. You've never had anybody who ultimately has. Well, that just goes, goes to show you that it's in everyone, right? Oh, that absolutely. Well, I, and I really believe impulse. that. And so because I believe, I think if you've got someone who's saying, you are going to do this, and there's, there's no doubt in my mind that people won't do it. This is all in their head. And you have a, yeah, you hold the faith for them, I yeah. suppose, until they're ready to. I mean, this, like, what we, I say, you know, you put a finger there. But for those who are just listening, we've just got the new ukulele out. That is one chord. So that already is putting one finger there one and finger pressing on that. One string, you're yeah. already playing. So people go, I can't do it, and then they already can within one minute. And they go, oh, okay, that wasn't so hard. Right. They're all sort of annoyed, they're like, oh, didn't want to be able to do this. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. they had a start, so now they've sort of contradicted that. But I won't be able to, I'm just not musical. I'm like, oh, okay, now I've got to. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's reminding me a little bit of my, my family setup, so I know that my my mother sometimes, if my dad started to sing, it would be, oh, don't be silly, you know, don't be silly, Colin. Yeah. My dad's like, and so, it's, that's, so I think that was, and maybe that's similar in a lot of childhoods, mm. is this sort of creative expression can often be, even, you know, so we think about it being a corporate issue, but how much of it is really a family yeah. issue oh, that absolutely. gets played out. Absolutely. And I, what I've noticed as well is there's a real, like a, a perceived link between play and not working like we just we, we we have decided on some level that when you're playing you're not working we say like work and play don't we it's either work or play or work mm. hard play hard we don't see that play could help the work and that play is a means to to like actually just getting to an answer more quickly mm. and that's why i do a lot is show them that 
like you create an, you know, almost like a reception classroom, like a year one classroom where it's all very play-based and people are just working intuitively and working, going with the sandpit and then going over here and creating a space where people can go into that and then work on something professionally, right? So I'm not saying you should always do things in a playful way at the end, but I'm saying it's helping you get to a much better result if you allow room for that first. Because it's a lot of what I find in these environments is it's fear. It's coming from fear. Like, we need to get this project done now, and there's like people are tensing up. And you don't work best when you're scared. You don't work best when you think someone's going to be annoyed at you. So, you've got to change those conditions so you get the best out of people. Right. It doesn't yeah. mean you lower the expectations, it just means you create an environment where people can do work and do good and thrive. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I. So I use Lego sometimes oh, in my yeah, workshops, yeah. And, and it's interesting how that has to get called Lego serious play, because you have to, to make sure we, everyone must understand this is serious, right? Yeah. Because there's this connotation that play isn't serious mm. and can't be serious. But I often get that kind of feedback that once they've gone into it and they've overcome some initial resistance mm. and then they've played with the Lego for a couple of hours, the richness of their understanding oh of the, because yeah. I use it to explore change challenges in mm. organisations, is, is just much greater and the fact they've loosened themselves up in terms of the ideas of time play. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you get people resisting at the beginning? Yeah, of the the, oh, I can't build or I don't know. Okay. And, uh, and then... And then they slowly improve over time. But I do think there's probably something in it that not everybody is as skilled a builder with their hands as everybody else, right? I mean, sometimes within five minutes, you get these incredibly elaborate yeah. models that you're like, wow, where did that come from? And um, others less so. But I think the same as what you're saying is that just starting to play with colored bricks mm. and doing things differently, shift something, even if the the, the, the edifice isn't particularly elaborate. Yeah, it like, doesn't have to be, that's the thing. I'm not being like, you have to be an amazing musician, but it's just giving yourself the, the chance to experience success in something. And I had, a, I had a girl the other day who was like, I feel this is so satisfying because it's not often at our level that we have the chance to feel successful at something new. Like we're always doing stuff either that we already have done for years or we're constantly being challenged but never feeling like you've actually achieved anything. She's like, it's such a gift. And you know, even just the feeling of success on something non-work related is really powerful. Right, yeah, mm. okay. So it's probably a good moment yeah. to... I've got some listener questions. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so, which uh, relate to your, your workshop. So I thought... Um, so the first one is from Peter Venn, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> what types of music, genres, styles, pace, beats per minute, etc., get the best results in various circumstances? In terms of my workshops? Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So I, I, I do a lot of... There's this, there's this thing called the four-chord medley. So this was a famous group from Australia called Axes of Awesome, who... Um, did a medley around the, the four main chords, so C, A minor, F, and G. And most pop songs work around these four chords. So I get a lot, I've got a whole booklet of songs that use these four chords. So things like Don't Stop Believing, Brimful of Asher, Proud Mary, Three Little Birds. And what I found works really well is splitting up the groups so that everyone has a chord each. So that I think in terms of the genres, it's generally ones people need to know it. People need to know it so that they kind of can sing along. So let it be always goes down really well. Don't stop believing as well. And then ones that are repetitive, so that don't need too much jumping around. So a four chord sequence that goes around. Okay, yeah. But I yeah. find, yeah, like I do a lot of 90s and people really enjoy that. 90s and 80s music. I think it's ones that people don't expect to be singing. So singing Brimful of Asher. Everybody right. needs a bosom for a pillow. <laughs> and just like banging on the ukuleles and people going, this is quite weird. I didn't expect to do this today at work. <laughs> 
I do the Dr. Dre riff sometimes with people, the still Dre. Oh, how's that go, so? I'll do, I'll do a little. So it's the. And I taught that with EY, Ernst and Young, and this girl was like, if I go home and tell my boyfriend I learned the Dr. Dre riff, he'll think I have the coolest job in the world. <laughs> I was like, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, you don't expect that to come out of a ukulele, but it, yeah, yeah. it kind of works, <laughs> it? Yeah. send it to Dr. Dre. Yeah. His, uh, his feedback, yeah. Um, okay, another question yeah. from Verpi. Uh, what's the difference between the learning to play part of your workshop and the songwriting part, do you think? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the, the first half of it is always, um, yeah, like breaking down the four chords. Um, in terms of like what actually we do, yeah, like I, I work on kind of building up. So we all do the C chord and then we all do the C and A minor. And a lot of that at, at that point is that we do, I do it kind of like in a meta level. So I say you're learning the ukulele, but we're also going to pause and zoom out at points and observe how you're being. So... For example, after the first chord, I'm like, how are you feeling doing something you've never done before? And you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your team members, but like, how are they responding? Are they really stressed? Are they like really embracing it? Are they being perfectionist about it? And then I also do a lot of practicing empathy. So I get people to teach each other and they practice listening and holding space for each other. So with all the, although I'm teaching the ukulele, there's also opportunities to learn about different leadership and management skills and styles within that. Wow, does that okay. make sense? No, no, not quite. So yeah, that yeah. Sounds, sounds awesome though. So how does that help you understand about styles? And yeah, so, so, so some of the things that, that come up a lot is, yeah, like for example, how you're approaching learning something new. Okay. So you, I, I say, yeah, we are learning the ukulele, but you're also learning, this is a kind of, this is a, a trigger for how you might show up in other moments of your job where you, you're having to do something you've never done before. So you okay. so you kind of start seeing the people who are really like they throw themselves in. I had one girl who was like, I realise how much of a perfectionist I'm being. Like I need to get right. this right, and I've only been learning for five minutes, but I notice that I'm needing that. And someone else said, I don't really understand why we're doing it, so I've opted out. And you start seeing kind of trends. I mean, it's just a way of showing up in other ways, um, how they might be in their job. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the like the listening. Like, that's really powerful. So I get them working in twos and helping each other. And actually, they always reflect back. Like, they, they don't often take that time to sit and listen with their direct reports or actually go, it's okay not to know how to do something and it's okay to be vulnerable. Because I say, how often would you say at work, actually, I don't know how to do that? And people are like, yeah, it's hard. Whereas they can be like, how do you do the C chord? And it's just help, helping them to see how they might show up and... Okay. And practice different ways of being. Right, right. So the song, so the um, so the, the the learning the music bit also has that element to it. Was it the songwriting then? Yeah. So what's the difference between mm. the learning to play yeah. part and then the songwriting part? Yeah. Because yeah, because I can imagine that's pretty terrifying to people. Yeah. As well. So we're halfway through, I put the ukuleles away, and then we do the songwriting, and that's usually an opportunity to to brainstorm around something that they want to talk about. So it could be a current leadership challenge they're having. It could be celebrating what's happened in the year so far. And I get people on the floor with huge flip chart papers and we I do lots of questions and they just make notes. And it's very like keywords, few phrases. And then I swap all the bits of paper around and they write rhymes. And then we from that, we create a bank for the song. 
And it's amazing, once you start loosening people's brains up by doing the rhymes, they, um, it's just amazing what comes out of it. And because they've been playing music for an hour and a half, their brains are so like supple. Okay, so you do it after they yeah. yeah, all right. And then I usually choose a song we've, we've been doing during the morning, and we rewrite the lyrics. And then they go off and rehearse, and then they come back and perform. So I, 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 give, I get them to a certain point, and then I say, right, I'm, I'm opting out now. And they like usually have half an hour to get it to performance standard. Half an hour. Mm. <laughs> okay. But it's amazing because you at that point I put the pressure on. So I haven't put the pressure on at all okay. of the day. Right. But so they've got all the skills, they've got everything they need, and then it's focused. But because they've been playing, because they're relaxed, it's amazing. Like what they do in half an hour is incredible. Right. Okay. And they and they're playing and singing at the same yeah. time, or some yeah. play and some sing? So I say to them, I keep it quite open, and I say, everyone must take part in a performance. And they decide how much they want to do. Right. So some, yeah, they have the whole group singing and playing. Some are just one person plays, and the rest kind of click. <laughs> but that's also interesting to look at. And then we have a big debrief of what, what have we learned about each other, and what, what do we need. And it's really rich what comes out of even just half an hour of working on something they've never done before. Like the sense of possibility to do something new, um, how to break stuff down, you know, giving people roles or people intuitively choosing their roles in the team. Mm. I suppose that's another, that's interesting. So that's another place in which they might see a mirror about yeah. how they lead or Absolutely. how they work in teams. Yeah. yeah, a lot comes out of that, like who steps up, who takes responsibility, how they take responsibility. Okay, and then do you do you, so? Is, do you then have a debrief around mm, that the, yeah, the yeah. sort of meta learning yeah, at yeah, the yeah. end of it? The meta's happening all the way through, but then after we have a really deep one after the um, after the songwriting performance, and sort of really great stuff comes out of that. But it's really important to take that time to make the links, otherwise it's it's just a, a fun day, which it can be. Right. But I think it's nice also to Reflect translate that back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. A lot happens. It's a lot of, yeah. Do you ever have? I mean, I, did, I remember working with Lego once, and somebody, um, it was so confronting the exercise that they had they had to leave. You know, they were sort of emotionally overcome mm. because of the challenge that we'd asked them to to work on. And do you ever ever have moments like that, or is it because they yeah was, because suddenly they've hit some you know mm. some deeper emotion that they weren't expecting to hit. I think to, people definitely find it emotional. I've not mm. had anyone leave because of emotion. Mm. But, but yeah, definitely people have said at the end, like being quite like teary, saying right. that they hadn't. I remember doing one at Google when someone said, I've never, I actually just haven't felt like that relaxed for so long. I've realized how stressed I've been. Okay. And they, they found it emotional, like realizing that they hadn't stopped or not looked at their phone for months. And that was, that was emotional for them. Right. Mm. But, so no phones allowed. Well, there's more, you just don't have time. You don't have time to look at your phone when you're playing E3. Can't. That's it's great. not even not allowed, it's just that you don't. It's funny. And I always, about an hour in, I say, has anyone thought about work? And no one has. Because you're just so focused on learning something new. Brilliant. Yeah, because you, you throw them in yeah. to such an extent that they have to. Right. So it's yeah. a brain break, if anything. Even if nothing else, it's a chance to not, it's to you know, recharge your brain. Right, right. And well, one of our previous guests, Dr. Theo Componole, talks a lot about how we need to give ourselves these brain breaks. Uh, yeah, he's, um, yeah, and how that improves our intellectual productivity because we, we're not particularly well designed to be multitasking. No. Right? You know, our brain doesn't, 
there's always switching costs. And 20 it minutes or something, is it? To switch? Right, yeah, you, well, in like terms that. of the loss, yeah. Like, well, I think it to actually switch from one task mm. to the next takes about 20 minutes. There's also, I love, Einstein used to play the violin to work out mass problems. So it's using the right or left side of the brain. Okay. So if you start the beginning of the workshop with a problem that you need to work on, you write it down, and then you play music for three hours, and then you come back to it, usually you've got, you've just, your brain has been working on it, but in a, diff, a different way. Wow, okay. And how do you find selling this then? Because do you, do, do, do people always come to you? Do you ever find yourself in a position where you're having to sort of sell this as a concept? Yeah, to absolutely. And yeah, absolutely. Like I, I approach a lot of companies. The best way though is that people have come and had a taster because once right. they've been in it and they've felt it, they're, they're really enthusiastic. But I find until they've done it, they go, mm, sounds interesting, but they can't quite understand how right. it could translate. And so what do you, what, when you are going in and you're selling it, mm. what do you tend to sell as being the benefits of it? Because I can imagine there might be some mm. people listening who are inspired by yeah. this conversation, wanting to do others' creative things, and they're not quite sure how to Absolutely. sell it to their boss. So I think one of the things is that you're giving people a space to understand themselves better. Right. So you're, it's experiential learning. So you're mm. doing something non-work related in a way to understand yourself as a leader better. So... Yeah, the mindset shifts. So I say it like triggers three things, like change in mindset, so what's possible, this kind of growth mindset, if you, yeah. if you know about like mm. Carol Dweck, the idea that our brain's a muscle and we can always, we can always learn, and fixed mindset being that you can either do something or you can't. So helping people to adopt a growth mindset. But also culture shifting, so understanding how to bring in more play, understanding how to connect with people more on a human level. And then, like I was saying, it's kind of bringing your whole self to work as a way to, to strengthen. I remember one guy said, now I've seen my boss play the ukulele, I'm not scared of him anymore. <laughs> because he sat there playing a yellow ukulele. You know what I mean? It's, it just somehow makes it all a bit easier. And then also productivity. So learning like hacks of how to get stuff done quickly. Even if you've got no previous knowledge in playing the ukulele, wow, we did a performance in half an hour, so what actually happened there and what can we bring to our um, to the processes we go through mm. to speed things up, to, yeah, to, to, to do things differently. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are the things, those are the main things that I see. I mean, culture, shared experience as well of doing something out of your comfort zone, I think is massive. So if you've got a team of people who aren't, I don't know, just like maybe they're all remote or they're working on something, but you need to get people together quickly, it's an amazing way of playing music together, mm. speeding up those connections. And right, right, okay. Mm. And, then, and you also do it at the end of conferences, I understand. So that's the songwriting. So I, at the end of conferences, I often do whole audience songwriting, where we, I give everyone pieces of paper, they reflect on what they've got out of the day, and then in 20 minutes, we just put it into lyrics and then sing. So fun. It's amazing. People are like, what? And then they do it. And it's, you know, often at the end of the conference, you're quite like overwhelmed with information, saturated. Yeah. And it's a way of turning that into energy. And you go off to the drinks going, who just wrote a song? And helps yeah. them maybe understand it. Better, yeah, yeah. Also do the, easy. yeah, do the process. Like, what did you get out of the day? Oh, yeah, we saw that talk. Oh, yeah, that was really interesting. Oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, doing the debrief. And do you ever do it in your, your comedy, you've got a comedy club as I well? Did, I did host. do it once, yeah. I did do it once at Christmas, which was fun. 
And you got the whole, yeah. the whole audience yeah. involved. What gave you ukuleles? Oh, no. So the songwriting conferences, I don't give everyone ukuleles. We okay. just do the songwriting. Right, okay. So and then you play. I play, yeah. Because yeah. it's in 20 minutes. <laughs> That's a lot of <laughs> teaching. And yeah. But also, I don't have 100 ukuleles, so it's, it's quite right. good to... Yeah, I give people percussion, though. Right. But yeah, I've done it a bit at the comedy night. And I did it at a wedding last weekend. It's like wrote a song with the wedding party. Right. I think it was a little bit too late in the day. <laughs> the amount of alcohol that we've been consumed. But hey, it was fun. <laughs> right. And have you ever booked Frank Skinner? Because he's obviously a big ukulele guy. No, isn't he? haven't. Awesome? No. I don't. Right. No, no. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. Well, we've got a shared history there because I used to run in a former life run mm. a comedy club. Yeah. Um, used so, to yeah. run a comedy club. Yeah, oh, but, yeah. Which one was it? The 99 Club. I helped start oh, that with Jamie Boronecki. So for those who, that's a big com chain of comedy clubs in London. Mm, yeah. Very I, cool. I stepped away from that. But yeah, I did, I did immediately think of Frank Skinner. Mm. It's all comedy you can do. But. So you, you started performing comedy as well? Yeah, that's right, at the beginning. Yeah. What um, was your comedy about? Confessional. Okay. <laughs> very confessional. And yeah, I, I shared this on another podcast actually, and it got, I did a, a gig called Monkey Business, which is mm. you know, in North London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the host said, okay, you, the acts, of the acts tonight, some of them you'll see on your TV screens in 10 years' time. Uh, some of them you'll never see yeah, again. Yeah. And some of them just need to be doing therapy. All right. And I was like, and it just hit me like a truck. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. Oh, so really? that. <laughs> but it is therapy for people. I and mean, of course it is therapy. And, uh, but I decided that I should really be doing Actual, actual therapy, therapy right? Yeah. So, yeah, it went off in that direction. I know, I know. You see people on stage going, "Is this the right? Is this the right platform? Maybe." Yeah. <laughs> Whatever works for people. Exactly. It's a lot cheaper. It is. <laughs> to do stand up And then ultimately, things. people start paying you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Getting paid to do therapy. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the other thing, which. Um, which is of interest, we know maybe mm. to our for people who've seen your TED talk. Yeah, so yeah. you've done a TEDx talk, right? Yeah, and yeah. you talked a lot about quitting. That was mm. a theme, and, and quitting not to quit. So yeah, tell us a bit more about that message. So it was around. It was called knowing when to quit. Yeah. So I have had a lot of career changes. I was I used to be a secondary school teacher, and I've done lots of different projects over the years. Um, I always had a strong sense when a project needed to end or that it wasn't making me happy anymore but I also felt a lot of shame around quitting because there was a sense that I should keep going whatever well, however I felt I should keep going and that felt like a, a society message of resilience and grit and you know you just got to keep going and I think that's an appropriate message sometimes but I was noticing that it was being taken to the extreme a lot of people I saw around me were staying in jobs and relationships and all sorts of things that were making them very, very unhappy. But the reason they didn't is because I can't quit. And this not quitting became this unsurmountable thing. And so what I was interested in, I, yeah, so when I, I got selected to do the TED Talk, um, I put out on Facebook and a few social media platforms, like, has, has anyone ever had this experience of wanting to quit but not being able to? And I was absolutely inundated with stories from people Really, like really like personal sad stories of the cost of them not quitting something that they knew they knew they needed to quit and how we need to have more of an open dialogue around quitting so yeah this was what the talk was around um saying actually if the, one of the biggest fears is that we'll be judged for quitting then we just need to take away that judgment 
and do what's right. Because then mm. it's about, it's not about whether you should quit or not. It's about whether stuff serves you. And sometimes it will serve you to continue. And sometimes it will serve you to stop. Right. And it's knowing yourself and checking in with your body and checking in with what actually is the right thing for you to do at that moment. Right. And off the back of that, I've now created a leadership framework to help people understand whether they want to quit or not. So it's a kind of quadrant, four, two by two, um, that yeah helps people identify what's actually going on. Because what I've realized is often the feeling of wanting to quit, I mean, it could be a multitude of things. It could be that you're not actually interested in the job anymore, but it could be that you're just struggling with a new task. It could be that you've got difficult colleagues. It could be that you're just absolutely knackered. So there's lots of things that could contribute to us going, I just need to get out. Mm. And when you can identify what's actually happening, then you can make small changes that could have a huge impact. So that's what I'm interested in exploring now. Right. And, what, and, and is there a moment in your life where you were faced with a decision about whether to quit or not that, that triggered this, mm. this thought process that you're prepared to share? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I think it's a multitude of things. So obviously, like, I was a secondary school teacher for three years. I knew that it wasn't making me happy. And I made that decision to leave. I, I think that... Um, that felt okay to leave. I mean, I think, I think I, I've always had a strong sense that things need to make me happy. Like okay. I've, I've always felt like that's, that's more important than any kind of duty. Because I just don't, I think at the moment that you're not in, engaged with something, then you're not serving anyone. You're not used to people. So the moment that I realized I didn't want to teach anymore, like I checked out and I wasn't going to be useful. I could try really hard, but I wasn't going to be connected to it. So I think it's just because I then went freelance and tried out loads of different projects and experimented a lot off the back of John Williams' 30-day challenge and screw so up. So John Williams was a oh, yeah. previous guest who, yeah. Yeah, who mm. enables people through a 30-day process, right, to find their passion and turn yeah. into a business. Yeah. But I think what it was more is that I had spent a lot of time because yeah, I had various projects that I started and then stopped. Like my first startup was running Colombian music workshops in schools. That was actually, that was probably a moment I could talk about. I had, yeah, I started this work, I started this company, I brought people on board, I started running workshops in schools, I had a really good first response, and I was like, this is great, I love being a freelancer. And then it, it was like the summer term, and everyone was free, so they were replying and asking to book workshops, and then it got to the autumn, and I was like, no one has booked, no one wants to do it, and I, I was like, but I've got to keep going. I've said I'll do this now. And I, for about six months, pushed it and pushed it and was looking at for funding and looking to bring other people on board. But I knew deep down I didn't want to do it. And, and a friend, I did a coaching session with a friend and she said, what would your ideal life look like in a year's time? And we plotted it all out and all the stuff I'd be doing. And she was like, you haven't written down your business <laughs> that you're running. Right. Why are you doing it? <laughs> And I was like, this moment of, oh, yeah, I don't know. And I just, you, it's that thing that's been niggling, and you know it's not working, but you don't really want to have to do anything about it because of all the, like, the practical things of having to close down a website, let people go, the, like, emotional, oh, I've tried this thing and it didn't work. So I really, I really resisted closing down that business. I really felt scared. And then I spoke to a few more people who would also run businesses, and they were just like, the thing you want to do is okay. Like, it's not the end of the world. 
and just having that permission. And as soon, I went through all the options, like, could I bring someone else on board? Could I, yeah, could I get funding? I just was like, I don't want to do it. It was just a headspace thing. I was like, I don't want this in my life anymore. And I just, the, the relief I felt and knowing I wasn't going to run it was just all I needed to know. But I did close it down and a lot of people, a lot of friends and family were like, oh, it's such a shame. And it, it, there's no one said, well done for noticing what you need to do. Well done for making a brave decision. Well done for doing what makes you happy. It was all really very negative response from most people. That you hadn't there was a real it. loss. Yeah, it was a real shame that it hadn't worked out. And I think that's what's so hard. Like, this is why people continue pushing. I think you've got to notice whether it's a kind of a positive push or a, like a really painful push. I think there's a subtle difference between like going along with something just for the sake of it and going and the, you know there's an energy you obviously you have to work hard at things but there's a different energy when you're invested to when you're no longer invested I don't know if you've ever stopped something that you're or carried on something that you weren't invested in anymore and how that felt right yeah god it's depending by you're sort of slogged on it's with something. Slog, yeah. yeah um it's a good question um I slogged on. You, so it, probably your brain doesn't want to recall it, right? You don't mm. want to recall the pain of when you've been in that position or admit to yourself yeah. that you, you stuck with something when really um, it wasn't the right thing. I, I, suppose, I suppose I might have, possibly I have the opposite problem, is that I quit relatively easily. Like I've chopped yeah. through a lot of careers yeah. when I felt like, oh, okay, this isn't, like with the comedy thing, I was like, yeah within a few days of that realisation that, oh no, it's actually therapy I need to be doing, I'd sort of wound down the comedy thing. But that's some clarity there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but I'm sure I've been in moments where, yeah, that's been true for me. It's... And if it hasn't, then it probably means you're, you're like one of the few that does just trust what you need to do. But I think that, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's times when we do need to keep going with things and times when we don't. And knowing that difference is about listening to yourself. And taking time to go, what do I need? What's the right thing? Yeah. And can you see how your mm. your matrix, so your four box grid, yeah. might have helped you in that moment oh, with absolutely. the startup? So with just for people things, who are listening, yeah. that might be interesting. So mm. what might have been the questions you'd have asked yourself looking back yeah. that might have helped? So the, the, the quadrant is, I won't share it all now, but it, the two axes are the level of discomfort and the level of interest. So I would have been like, how interested am I in running the startup? And, that, and looked at that separately and then be like, what is the discomfort right now? And is, that, is there something I can do about that discomfort? So the, the interest is like, how bought in am I to, to this idea of, because it was all around teaching languages through music and having more authentic experiences of, of, um, of culture in, in learning Spanish at schools. So I was really interested in that idea. I really cared about it. So I did have a high interest in it. But I also, the discomfort was around just like what it would take to get this startup off the ground, especially working in schools where there's not much money and, you know, working on my own pretty much on the back end of stuff. The role I was playing in it wasn't very energising. So there might have been things where I'd said, what would energise me more in this? What role could I play? Who might not I need to bring in? Um, and do I care enough about the end goal to do all those changes? Right. I think it was the right decision to stop that. Definitely. Yeah. I think it was. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think it's always up. Yeah, the question I will always ask is, what is the discomfort? 
and can I do anything about it? Because if you can't, if, the, if, you know, if, if you're working for an organization and the values of the organization are ones that you disagree with and you're clashing with and you just fundamentally can't get on board with it, that's not going to change. Okay. But if it's like, oh, I don't really get on with my boss, well, maybe you could have a conversation and work hard at that relationship. Or the tasks I'm doing day to day are really dull. Okay, well, ask to do different things. You know, it doesn't have to be, this is never going to change, I need to leave. Hmm. So, yeah, inquire into the nature of the discomfort. You're yeah. And then, and then how do you tease out, is this discomfort that's, like, serving me in some, this is, a, like, a level well, of stress I just need to go through absolutely. to so, get yeah. there? Or is this, as you say, something that's telling me I'm on the wrong path? So this is what I was really interested in. Because when I did my TED talk, I just talked about discomfort generally. And since doing it, I've been like, nah, I, there's a whole level of discomfort that I haven't looked at. And this is why, like, actually, I think my TED talk, I don't agree with it all now, even though it was only like six months ago. But I've gone into this new level. So I started doing this clowning course. I don't know if you know about clowning. As in like, top red Yeah, kind of like mime slash comedy. Um, anyway, I was six weeks into an eight-week course. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this anymore. But I was like, oh, I'm interested now. I'm curious of what's actually happening. And I was like, is this, am I struggling because I don't want to do it and I'm just not interested? Or am I struggling because it's got hard and actually this is an opportunity for me to grow? And so that's why I got really interested in these ideas of discomfort and disinterest. Because sometimes there's a discomfort and actually you should push through. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow, maybe to have a difficult conversation, maybe to like speak in public. There is a discomfort and you want, your inclination is to go, I just need to get out. But there's other discomforts might, that might be psychological or, or like maybe just the, the team environment is actually really like not good for your mental health or the hours you're working is unsustainable. So I think, yes, yeah, maybe there's a second question. There's what is the discomfort and is this a discomfort that I want right now? And there'll be times of our life where we really seek out discomfort and we'll be seeking out that challenge and that, that development. And there'll be other times where we say, actually, we've had enough discomfort. I need to feel good at something now. Okay. So kind of fluctuating between growth and flow and the whole time. Right. I, I can see there's something in there where this is a, a discomfort that will pass because it's part of my journey to get to somewhere else. And yeah. just discomfort that is sort of baked into yeah. my environment. And it's telling me yeah. I'm in the wrong environment. As Absolutely. And so it's, and I think that's where the interest is interesting. Because if I'm working in a job and there's, it's like, I think when I started teaching, it was really hard. I was like huge, steep learning curve, but I was really wanted to be a teacher. So I, I was up for that. I was up for that discomfort. As I got less and less interested in being a teacher, that discomfort became much more negative because I was like, I felt like I was pushing just to get through something. And for short periods of time, you might need to go through something that you're not interested in that's just that's feeling discomfort. But if you sustain that for too long, that's when you want to quit. So that's what in this quadrant I've said, every part of the quadrant is fine and necessary and we need to go through all of it. But if you stay in one bit for too long, that's where it gets unsustainable. Even if we're in a flow state for too long with no challenge, we'll get bored. Mm, to right. some people that will be longer than others. Right, and the flow state for people is? Yeah, so that I've called that where you are having a high level of interest but a low level of discomfort. So things are, you're really into it, really interested, but um, you are not feeling, yeah, not, there's, you're not feeling that challenged, not feeling, you're just, you're just kind of in it, you're just feeling really engaged in it. Right, okay. 
Okay. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned Dweck there. What was her mm. name? Carol uh, Dweck. Carol Dweck, who, um, in terms of growth mindset, are there any other big influences for you in developing your ideas? Mm. I do think John Williams, actually, in terms right. of one of the things that I, I don't know if it was his idea, but it was definitely something I got from him of this. What I'm really interested in is that we all have, we tend to work in things that we're like really good at, but not natural at, because we like to feel that we've worked hard to get there. So the things that we are naturally good at, we often don't even notice as strengths because they seem so obvious to us, we don't think that they're a strength. And so a lot of the work he does is getting people to identify what those, um, those natural things are and turning them into jobs. Okay. And, and just going, yeah, because there's something, yeah, maybe there's something baked into how we're brought up or our education that tells us, you know, it should, or it should be hard. Is it, yeah, is it should be hard. We, you know, having qualified, you're most likely to seek qualifications and things you can't already do, right? You're not going to get qualifications in something you can already do. And, and these things that you can already do are often very, like, they might be the fact that you're very good at connecting with anyone. And you like, well, obviously, everyone can connect with everyone. Or, like... You know, I have friends who are incredible cooks, and they don't think they don't think they're good because it's so obvious. Oh, I was just following a recipe, and making a ten-course dinner. Was well, that's not a thing? I'm like that's a thing, <laughs> but because they're so good at it, they don't realise that it's a skill. They never think to train up in it. It's just, just what you do. Mm. So it's noticing what these things are, and I think that's a lot of the stuff in this creativity is getting, helping people to see. Oh no, what are you naturally doing when you're not being told what to do? And go and follow that. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that's interesting. It reminds me of some research they've done on um, achievement in America. And they found that it's often the, um, the star pupils at high school and yeah. college who, who don't necessarily become the most successful in society yeah. because they're very good at working hard at lots of different subjects and getting good grades, mm. but not very good at following their natural passion and getting obsessed and going yeah. deep into what they're naturally called to do. And it's those people who might not do particularly well in the school system because they're not very good at balancing mm. all these plates and doing well in all these subjects who become more successful statistically yeah. than... Um, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Well. So when you've been used to always having to work hard, actually, but like because you didn't find things easy. Yeah. What do you think your things are that are natural skills that are, you wouldn't even... Maybe you don't, and maybe we're not aware of these so much, but have you discovered anything that you've, you thought everyone could do but actually is really unique to you? Uh, well, often people tell me like, that they're terrified of the idea of facilitating a workshop. Yeah. Right? Or, or even just speaking. Yeah, yeah. I've never had... Oh, no, that's not true. I used to get quite nervous sometimes. Mm. Well, actually, comedy. Yeah, People yeah. would be like, how the hell do you go on stage and do that? And of course it was difficult, and especially when you bomb it. It really is yeah. hard. Right? It's not like I'm denying that, but I suppose I had a natural facility to get on stage yeah. and, just, and, and share stuff or facilitate a mm. room of difficult people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or nice people. You know, yeah, like yeah. that. I have a natural affinity mm. to do. Yeah, those are the two that spring to mind, mm. most obviously. But I do think it's interesting we don't value the things that we're natural at because we haven't had to work hard at them. Mm. We like, there is this feeling of, if I've, you know, if I've slogged at something, if I've got a qualification in it, if I've worked in it for 20 years, now I'm good at it. And that things that come easily aren't worth noting. Right, yeah, yeah. no, I can see that, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, 
So the other question was daily habits. Do you have, you know, because mm. you've got all these this stuff going on, right? I mean, you're just successful in many areas. Oh. <laughs> daily secret. habits. Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I do things daily, but things that I like to do are journaling, like the morning pages. So writing three pages of stream of consciousness. I find that's a really helpful way of... That's the artist. Yeah, way. the artist's way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that years ago. Um, do you do journaling? I do journal, yeah. yeah. Every day? Every day, yeah. At well, night, I tend to do it. At oh, night. you don't night, yeah. okay. I don't do it every day. I, but I do do gratitude every night before I go to bed. Like a list of gratitudes, which is nice. And do try and meditate most days. But I think I do need a bit more of a routine. I'm quite, because I've got lots of things going on, there needs to be a bit more stability. Right, okay. Good. Uh, well, before I ask my final question, I wonder if there's anything can we do on the ukulele before uh, yeah. to wrap up this interview? What could we, what could we possibly uh, create? Do you want to sing something? Yes. I really like this song, but saying yes. Should we, like, do you want to write a song? How long have we got? <laughs> How long do we, we need? Freestyle. We um, you could write, we we could write a little song about the, the podcast. Okay, we're going to have to try and do this whilst keeping the interest of the listeners. This is going to yeah, be a yeah. double challenge. I'll be really... And I need, and I need a pen. Tell me a song that you love. Uh, what's a song okay. I, I love? A pop um, song. Um, it's an easy one to do um, that I really like. Um, <laughs> Stone Roses, no. I am the red... No, you're not. Oh, that's no, going to be difficult. I don't know that one. Um, <laughs> Let it be, you read it, let it be, okay. Let it be, I know that one. So let's write down some things that you, um, that your mem your favourite memories of the Being Human podcast. Favourite guests um, you've interviewed. Sarah Wheeler, Wyler, 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 no. Wyler on her, uh, <laughs> on her, on her ukulele. Yeah. Oh, forgetting to address uh, Dr. Franz Genov as doctor at the oh, okay. first start of the interview. That's mm -hmm. actually it's Doctor Richard. Um, what else have been my favourite moments? Um, oh yeah, challenging on Dave Snowden on um, why he's so <laughs> arrogant. Oh, did you speak to him? When you find yourself being human, remember to address someone as Doctor Richard Atherton. Let him be.
That was great. You didn't need me singing. You were brilliant. Okay, so that was. Thank Did you. So I said you didn't need me singing. I was trying to. Oh, sorry. I should have written them down. We do want a one more chorus. One more chorus. Yeah. Um, shall I write it down? Yeah, as we go? you write it. Okay. What do you want to say them? Um, what, what's another? What's another topic? I mean, I, first of all, I am blown away by the fact you just. I gave you a couple of keywords and you just all integrated it instantly. Um, what's another? Another moment. Um, um, so there is a moment with Dr. Franz Janov who we had on where um, we did come up with this idea of writing a book because um, that was all about the birth experience and how it affects us as adults, oh, cool. our birth. And she was like, well, yes, we should definitely write a book with everybody's horrific birth experiences and how it's impacted us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, that was kind of so came out of that bulk that, from... So let's get that down nowhere. to the verse. So... How do you say it, Doctor? Doctor Dr. Franz Janov. And, Dr. Um, Franz Janov told us. Oh, so what you say? She said that we should all. We should, that, that we should write a book uh, that catalogues people's horrific birth experiences. Doctor Franz Janov said we should write a book. Write a book that catalogues everyone's birthing experiences. That would be a good read. Yeah, it's a bit too many syllables, but okay. let's go for it for now. You can sing. Okay. So, Dr. Dr. Francis said we should write a book that catalogues everyone's birthing experiences. That would be a good read. 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 Read about my birth. I mean, it's, it's probably not going to be number one. But <laughs> tough topic, but well done. Thanks very much. Well Thank done, you. you. <laughs> All right, final, final question. All my guests. So, Sarah Weiler, yeah. to you, what does it mean to be human? Oh. Um, live life. Just do what you need to do. Show up. Have fun. Connect. Play music. Play music. Okay. Thank you very much. And finally, for people who want to get more of Sarah Weiler, where's mm -hmm. the best places to check? So, powerofuke.com is my ukulele website. Rye Loves Comedy Night, it's the comedy night I run. Um, and I'm Sarah Ukulele on Instagram for our U Grammars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for your Thanks time. For <laughs> the Being Human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com <laughs>